for me, a big thing was just ask a lot of good questions, listen to people and copy the strategies that are working. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey guys, it is Sarah Larby and welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Today's interview is so much fun. I'm going to be talking with Matt McKeever and Kellen Panicia, who are both very, very successful real estate investors in London, Ontario. And the podcast will go through lots of different strategies and also one of my favorites, which is the Burr strategy, where you buy, you renovate, you rent, you refinance, and if you add a fourth R, you can also repeat the process. You pull your money out and you can still hold the property. It really is, in my opinion, the best investment strategy if you're looking and you're not too sure if you want to flip properties, you're not too sure if you want to be a landlord and hold. This is my favorite. So we're going to talk about that. And also, one of the things that I am a big proponent of is networking. And Matt and Kellen actually host their own networking educational club in London. So they're going to talk about that. And they're really, really active in the real estate investment community. So I believe that your net worth is your network. And it is so much easier and much better to learn from others' mistakes rather than learning only from your own. It could actually save you a ton of money. So if you have any questions for Matt or Kellen, their information is going to be posted on the show notes. So take a look at that. I know they are very active on Instagram. They're very active on YouTube as well. They have a YouTube show Matt, uh, which is Matt McKeever, M-A-T-T-M-C-K-E-E-V-E-R. And you can actually watch him on YouTube. He'll go through some of his properties on there. And they're also on Instagram. So really, really great interview. If you guys have any questions or you are interested in potentially being a guest on the podcast, if you've got an interesting story or maybe a topic that we haven't touched on, that we haven't discussed. I want to give back to the audience. And if you think that you've got something unique and you want to share it or a great success story, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to hear more about it and see if you may be a possible guest for the podcast. You can reach out to me by email at sarah at sarahlarby.com or you go to my website, which is sarahlarby.com and just go to the contact me page and otherwise you can also contact me on Instagram because I do have Instagram now, surprisingly, which is sarahlarby84 and uh, I'm actually enjoying it. So Instagram is kind of fun. <laughs> I'm putting some updates on the flip property. I'm putting some updates on the cottage, just things in general and what we're up to and the Sobrite events, you know, hopefully I've, I've met actually a lot of you guys in person from at the Sobrite Club from the podcast. So thanks for reaching out, guys. I really, really appreciate it. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you really enjoy it, please leave a review and a rating. And uh, I'm definitely going, I do read them. I do enjoy 
looking at them. So if you guys wouldn't mind taking five minutes, that'd be awesome. All right. Anyways, guys, let's uh, get on with our interview with Kellen and Matt. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? Good. I'm really excited to have you guys on. Yeah, we're pumped. Yeah, we're definitely excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So let's just jump right into it. And this question is for both of you. How and when did you get started in real estate investing? Who wants to go first? So I'll start off. I started investing in real estate in 2010 when I was 25. And so I got started in student rentals. So they were the best cash flowing properties that I could find here in London, Ontario. So that's kind of what drew me in. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad was kind of the gateway book or the gateway drug into the idea of real estate investing for me. And perfect. Just for our audience, can you just say your name so that they can put the voice to the name? Sure. So this is Matt. Perfect. And this is Kellen. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Kellen? Yeah. So I started in August of 2016. So not very long ago. And yeah, it's been a busy year and a half, two years. And I don't know if you want to dive into it now, but I've acquired six properties in that time, 18 units. And it's been, I'm still working my full-time job. So it's been a busy, busy life. So what's your full-time job? I work in software testing. So I work with a team of developers and I break their software and make them fix it. Awesome. Matt, what, do you have a full-time job? So I w- was working, I still have my CPA license and I worked as a CPA until I was 31 and then kind of dropped out of the rat race because of real estate investing. So for the last two years, I've been feral. Amazing. Living the dream. So how did you guys meet one another? So yeah, it's kind of funny. We actually both met each other. Well, obviously we met each other through a networking event here, a bigger pockets event in London, Ontario. So it was a local networking event for real estate investors, bigger pockets for people that aren't familiar is probably one of the best websites, one of the best podcasts on real estate investing. And so, yeah, I think we just both had kind of been on the bigger pockets website, met up in person, I think at bigger pockets, right? And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I think all of us at that meetup were just hammering through bigger pockets podcasts, listening to dozens or hundreds of them, learning everything we could. And then, I think they kept on the podcast saying, go on the forum, see, like put in an alert for your local city. And I think all of us did that, got an alert when somebody posted, hey, let's do a meetup here in London. And first meetup was a good success and met a whole bunch of amazing people. And it's kind of developed into some of our own meetup groups since financial independence related and real estate related. That's actually how I really became obsessed with investing in real estate and, you know, creating that freedom is actually through bigger pockets and listening to those podcasts. Yeah, no, they're amazing. Like they open your like even still I listen to them and I'm blown away by some of the guests they have on there. It makes you think on a whole new level. Absolutely. Do you guys invest together? So no, and we were kind of joking about before we jumped on this because we're laughing because there's been lots of probably close calls and a few times that we've came close to it, but it's just never worked out. So for example, Kellen's very first property he bought, he wanted to move into house hack. And so he needed to get one tenant to move out. So I ended up taking on that tenant at one of my properties. And at a different point in time, I paid Kellen a finder's fee because he found an amazing deal and just wasn't he was still kind of too new to real estate and it was a massive deal. And you're probably happy you didn't buy it. <laughs> I, I I've now been like over a year in permit hell over this <laughs> property. 
I still don't, I don't hold it against you, Kellen, for introducing me to it. I was talking about that yesterday. I was happy to, I'm looking back, I'm really happy to just take it a fighter's fee and not have to deal with that because that's probably the biggest project that anyone's taken on in our entire group. It's turned into the renovation from hell. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to hear about this. What is it? (laughs) So like it was, it's actually literally just like a block away from where we're shooting this episode right now. And so it was an old century home, a triplex and it needed a lot of work. And I went in eyes wide open to that fact, but uh, it needed even far more work than we expected. And essentially, once we started pulling permits on this old house, it just never stopped. So we have new property inspection standards here in London, Ontario. So if you want to have an income property and it's going to be a rental property here, you got to go through a series of hurdles you'll need to pass that otherwise a property maybe wouldn't have to pass. And so anyways, long story short, like We've ripped it. It's going to be all new plumbing, all new electrical. It's literally going to be a brand new house by the time we're done. And the funny thing is, you know, don't play your tiny violins on my behalf quite yet, because over the year of permit hell, it's probably appreciated an extra 20, 25 percent over what I anticipated it for. So, again, it's one of those things where it's actually all working out. But it definitely had it been someone's first project, it would have been a scary project to bite off. Yeah, I would have been on a whole different trajectory. I probably would have had one property because, I mean, if, if I would have bought that, I would have been sinking all of my money into renovations. And yeah. Well, and not to mention it's been broken into like four times now. I've had all my tools stolen once and some tools stolen a second time. Again, it's one of those things when you're taking on a project of this size, you need to be eyes wide open on it. And so we had some really large margins for error. And thankfully we did because we're expanding to fit those margins right now. So so I actually want to ask you guys about margins and how to calculate that. But first, what are you going to be doing with that property? What's your exit strategy with it? So, yeah. So the plan is kind of my classical burn investment strategy. I think a lot of people are using the burn investing strategy these days. And so we bought that property for like 150000 and we're going to probably spend about 150 in rentals on it. And it should be worth somewhere around 400, maybe 400 and change once we're done. The original plan was to buy it for 150, spend under 100 in rentals and have it be worth like three and change. So you can see it's it's evolving. And if I remember correctly, Dan DeVoe made a bet with you that- I'm pretty sure he must have called the inspectors on me or something. (laughs) He made a bet that you would not be able to do that rental for under 100,000. Yeah, and now that we're tearing off the second story edition, rebuilding that he's correct. So, you know, it is definitely a good lesson and it's not all positive and butterflies and rainbows or whatever it is in real estate. So it's important to talk about this kind of stuff and the stuff that can go wrong. And I think one of the biggest things is your purchase price, right? So one of the biggest things I always say is you make your money on the buy and you still are going to be spending probably more money on the rentals that you think. And it's probably still going to take more time to maybe sell or you may not get the refi number. So can we walk through some of the numbers? Like you mentioned BRRR. How are you looking for properties and what's a good property for that so that you can avoid exactly what happened in a way, right? If you were to buy your property for 300000 to begin with, you probably would have been at a loss. Yeah, I think starting out, you run a lot of numbers. The rule of thumb that pretty much everyone I know now is using is the 1% rule. So if the property is 200000 it should rent for 2000 a month in rent. It should rent for $2,000 a month. That should be basically after repairs. So you want to have a $200,000 after repair value and it should rent for $2,000 a month. I think, you know, a lot of times investors at the early stages, especially when they're trying to build financial independence, are really looking for cash flow. And I think cash flow is king. Like 
If you find a property that's cash flowing, it's also going to be worth, it's, it's, you're going to have a million exit strategies. You can sell it to investors. You can do whatever you want. But your mindset does change as, you know, you don't necessarily look for that cash flow anymore later because if you have the passive income you need to sustain your lifestyle, you can start looking for, you know, maybe properties that you think are going to appreciate or properties that you don't necessarily have the cash flow in the meantime. You're going to buy something and make your money on the purchase. Maybe you can get more into flipping and that kind of stuff. So your question again, because I went on a rant. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. No, it's all good information. And so kind of building upon that then. So the 1% rule is really important in our market for determining cash flow. And so we're both very focused on cash flow. And then outside of that, just generic numbers for using the BRRRR or what's called the buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat model. Essentially, when everything's all said and done, we want our purchase price plus our holding and closing costs and our renovation costs to be about all in 80% of our expected ARV. And so we're kind of relatively conservative investors. So we're often probably aiming for closer to 70 to 75% all in. And that's going to give us a little bit of margin again in case, say, the appraisal doesn't come in where we expected. And so on a recent project, currently an appraisal didn't come in where I expected. And so what ends up happening when it goes sideways like that is we bought the property for 210. We spent about 40,000 in renovations on it. And in my opinion, it's worth probably 350 plus. The appraiser disagreed with us. So we're in the process of getting a second appraisal on it. And we'll see whether that comes in more in line with my expectations. But the nice thing is worst case scenario with something like this for investing strategy is I'm now left with a really strong cash flowing property. That property I'm all out pocket 250 on. And it's cash flowing about, well, it's grossing 4,000 a month. And so we're paying all utilities on it. So it's definitely not cash flowing that, but still a very strong cash flowing property. So worst case scenario is I won't be able to reaccess the new equity I've created and I'll have to maybe wait a couple of years to go and then refinance and get access to that equity to go repeat the process all over again. Yeah, really well said. I do want to go back for a second just because you mentioned with this property that you had a lot of permits that you had to pull and a lot of things that you were not expecting to happen. And what are some of those examples that we could you know, enlighten some of the audience or the listeners about some things that are probably going to happen at some point in your investing life. Sure. So there's so many to choose from on this property, <laughs> but I'll pick with one that's relatively simple that a lot of people in London, Ontario will definitely come across. And that is our property standards inspectors or the property standards act or whatever you want to call it is very focused on ceiling height these days in our market. And so one of the entrances to a second story apartment was six foot four and a half at one point. And so it technically needs to be six foot five. Never mind the fact that it's been that way for 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years. Doesn't matter. You can't point that out to them, the word grandfather in the building code. So they won't take that. So essentially what we ended up having to do is we literally have to rip the entire roof off of this addition and rebuild it. Our alternative was to find a new entrance to the unit, which would have meant sacrificing a couple hundred square feet in living space, which when you looked at it, it was we we're far better off to spend another 15, 20,000 completely renovating and rebuilding this addition versus losing that square footage. So that was one surprise. And again, it was something that we kind of knew. We had an asterisk beside it when we walked through the property. We were well aware of the ceiling height and we were hoping usually there's a bit of a grace allowance there. So usually they'll give or take about a half inch. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. This time they didn't. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely one. And then the other one is, again, the moment you start opening up 
older construction, new building code applies. So one of our demoers was a little bit too aggressive and he actually broke the fire separation between two of the units, which means we then had to go through and do all new fire separation up to new code rather than the old lath and plaster that was there. So that five minute error costed us a couple grand in new fire prevention measures. But that being said, at the end of the day, this property is going to be up to an even better standard than we intended it to be. So it's not like the price won't be reflected once we're done. We're simply going to end up doing an even higher grade of renovations than we expected. So probably initially our expectation was to be kind of middle of the road on where our renovations and tenant profile was going to land on this project. And now since we're spending more money, we've decided to just kind of commit and go all in. And so we'll go higher end, more stainless steel, that sort of thing on this unit. So again, you know, Kellen kind of hinted at it at the beginning of the episode that we would like to have multiple different exit strategies or ways to pivot. And that's what's great about real estate investing is we are in control. So unlike say investing in a publicly traded equity, we can exercise any influence or control over that investment where in this case, you know, my renovation budget's piling up. So instead of just being stuck and having to bore that cost, I can actually pivot and maybe create a higher end rental property that will cash flow more in the future. Or maybe I could look at turning it into a short-term stay or an Airbnb in the future. So. All right. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, guys. Just out of curiosity, I know you briefly mentioned that a little bit of your portfolio and what that looks like today, but can you let us know what it consists of and also where you want to go with it. So do you have a goal to acquire X amount of properties or X amount of income? And what does that look like? Yeah. So for me, I'm currently at six properties, 18 units. So that's three duplexes, two triplexes and a sixplex. Most of them are within a two minute drive or five minute drive of each other. I can walk to most of them. So it's really nice if you forget a tool or something like that, you can whip around the corner and grab it. In terms of what my goals are, that's something that I've really been struggling with because, I mean, the goal was financial independence and I've reached that and I'm still working my full-time job, but I don't need to be. So the real challenge right now is a major switch in mindset to, okay, what's the new goal? And you look at people that are like, you know, identify what you want to be working on in life and step one, identify your goal, step two, and then it goes on about how to like reach your goals, but I can't get past step one. I don't know. I can't really identify what my goal is. I worry that I am maybe just continuing on with what's been working, which could be a great thing because I'm building wealth pretty rapidly with it, which isn't really can't really be a bad thing, I don't think, at least financially. And so I figure it's working well for me right now. I'm going to continue at it and see what doors it opens. I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to keep doing what I enjoy. And then I'm going to have to keep processing that and determine what my goal is at this point. Okay, that's good. And so, yeah, for myself, so right now I have 16 properties. I just sold one a couple weeks ago. And actually until this year, I'd never sold a property. I'd simply only ever bought properties. And up until this year, again, my goal was essentially just to buy every property until I guess I owned all of them like Pokemon. And recently I started to really reframe that or call into question that motive and Part of the reason was as I continued to grow my portfolio in 2016 and 2017, I acquired about 25 units each of those years. And so rapidly increased the amount of management I had to do. I tried to bring in outside property managers to try and help and assist with it and had mild degrees of success with it, but found that they were never able to implement the same effectiveness as myself. And so recently I've started really thinking about 
the idea of maybe consolidating. And actually, I've put up the majority of my properties for sale now, and I'm looking at maybe buying a development property here in downtown London. And so looking at maybe acquiring about a third or a half of an acre and trying to do a small rise or a mid-rise building here. So I think I'm just being drawn to the idea of a new challenge. And so again, originally when I got into real estate investing, like Kellen, my goal was to reach X amount of passive income a month. And so I really wanted something, what's called lean fire. So the idea of financial independence retired early off a very low amount. So really I was thinking, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year in passive income from my real estate would be more than enough to sustain the lifestyle that I'm happy with that I'm currently living. And so kind of once I got to that point, I continued growing just because I, it was fun. I didn't know what else to do. And I think I'm going to continue doing that just because I think any individual that gets themselves into real estate investing, gets them into uh, being a producer, is going to constantly feel compelled to do it, whether you've reached your financial goal or not. So I think that for me, the idea of moving into developments is simply the opportunity to take on a whole new challenge and learn a whole new skill set. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I've listened to a lot of real estate podcasts and it seems like the goals are always just more. I just want more. I want to build more. I want to buy more, whatever. I want to wholesale more. And I think that because of the financial independence mindset we were originally coming from, it's more like, all right, we're constantly asking ourselves, what is enough? When is enough? Are we doing what we want to be doing? Are we happy doing it? Are we passionate about it? Are we excited? It's a little bit more of a philosophical, like introspective yeah. uh, decision versus I want a hundred thousand a year in passive income. I want a million a year and whatever, right? Like, I mean, it's easy to just throw a number out there and that's my goal. I'm working toward it. But I mean, is that really your goal? And that, I think that's a challenge that a few of us face. So yeah, so really well said. It seems that your goals are changing and my goals are always changing as well. I mean, originally I actually thought I needed 10 properties and I was going to be set for life. Ended up sitting down with a mortgage broker and we were looking at our goals and she's like, no, you actually need X amount more. And it was not 10. It was a lot more than 10 to reach the goals that I wanted to. But, you know, it's funny because over time and over the years, things change, right? You're looking at different you know, goals. You have different reasons that you're doing real estate. There is new opportunities. So it is really important to still be flexible. And, you know, I definitely appreciate you guys sharing, you know, your goals or, you know, potential changes in your real estate investing. Mm -hmm. And so you both have a lot of properties. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking right now, like, how do they afford so many houses, so many duplexes, triplexes, et cetera? Like, what are you guys doing? So, yeah, I think the biggest thing is we're very focused on the velocity of our money. So making sure that we're able to reuse that money again and again on investment. And so the burn investing strategy, I think, has been critical to both mine and Kellen's success. Yes. Like Kellen acquired a ridiculous amount of properties in a very short period of time. I think a lot of that was because of the burr, right? Yeah, able to recycle yeah I, I didn't have 20 percent down on all of those to start. My first property I bought for 5 percent down. So I did the CMHC insured mortgage back when the fees were a little bit lower and it was 177,000. It's probably worth closer to 250 now, but that was about $8,000 out of pocket to close on a property that I'm in right now that I live for free in. It's a duplex. I have tenants on the other side paying 950 and they're paying all their heat, hydro and water. And my mortgage is 900 or so. And that's with the new mortgage rate increases and all that because I had a variable mortgage. So I live for free, which means that I can save 100% of my income from other things. And then, yeah, I mean, basically, I worked a full-time job. I just saved a bunch of money. I think I had about 120 grand or so saved up just from working and saving and living fruitfully. And then 
I bought my first place 5% down, even though I could have done 20% down because I wanted to only use $8,000 of my money so that I could then have more money to go re buy the next place. And then, you know, 20% down, buy it, renovate it, refinance it. And then, I mean, if you get a good enough deal, you get all your money out. Or if you get a, a stupidly good deal, you get all your money out and more. Yeah, 100%. And then that's definitely what I did at the start too, was for investing, able to just recycle that down payment money so you're not tying it up in one property. And then what I started transitioning to, and again, I think a lot of real estate investors hit this point at one point or another in their investing career, is you start bringing on money partners. And so I started finding people where, hey, they got money, they, they have the ability to qualify for a mortgage, but for whatever reason, they either don't have the time or the expertise to find the deal. Whereas I have the time and the expertise to find the deal. So we're able to come together and find a win-win partnership. And so the way I've structured a lot of my joint ventures with money partners is, I bring the deal, I bring the plan, we execute on it. It's still a burn investment strategy. So realistically, my money partners often look at it as a short-term investment. So they're really just loaning me kind of money interest-free for say six months. And then at the end of the six months, they get 50% of the property as well. And so I think between using the burn investing strategy as well as finding money partners is two of the fastest ways to really speed up the velocity of your money and increase the amount of properties you can acquire in a short period of time. Yeah, personally, I hadn't partnered on anything yet, but I love the idea, especially when you don't have a full-time job, you can use your partner to qualify for those mortgages. And honestly, the, the proposal that Matt has with or had and has with partner with um, money partners is a little bit sexier, I think, than it needs to be. People are coming in and they, I've got 50 grand, I've got 70 grand. It's okay. That means you can buy a $250,000 place with 20% down. So it's 50,000 down payment, 20,000 left over for renovations. We will give you all of your money back in three months and you'll own half a house. It's kind of a ridiculous deal because it's an infinite return on investment. They got their initial investment back and they're still getting dividends from it and they don't have to do any work. <laughs> so it's in and from the you know investors active partner side of things, it's also a great deal because they don't need to bring any of their own money. They just do all the work and they own half a house. Totally like it's a definition of a win-win both sides should be ecstatic about it. I mean, I'm biased, but I would argue that the, the passive partner is kind of getting the sweeter end of the deal in that case. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So that was, you guys answered my next question because I was curious, like if you're doing any joint ventures and how that's working. And so if somebody's a new investor and maybe they don't have the money, what would you suggest that they do in order to find a money partner? So yeah, so I think when you're new to investing, if you don't have a lot of experience either, it's definitely going to be a challenge to get a money partner. So talking realistically, your best bets are right off the bat, people that are close to your network. So close friends or family members would be a realistic starting point. Outside of that, the next best way is to find a fantastic deal. At the end of the day, there's more money than there is deals. So get that fantastic deal. The way you're going to get a fantastic deal, at least in my market in London, Ontario, you're not going to find that on realtor.ca. You're going to need to find a private real estate deal. So whether that's you scraping Kijiji or whether that's you putting up we buy houses signs, whether that's you going to every single networking event and shaking hands with every real estate investor you meet and just trying to find interesting opportunities. I think that finding a fantastic deal and then simply being able to turn it around to your network and be like, hey, guys, I got this awesome deal. Here's the pitch who wants in and you'll find that the money will get attracted to you. I know that at the very start of real estate investing, it doesn't feel that way, but odds are you just don't have a deal. If you don't have money chasing you for that deal, 
it's not an honest deal. So if you're brand new to real estate investing, you don't have any money and you don't either have the time or the patience to wait to save up that money to get into real estate investing, you need to find a fantastic deal. Yeah, and I think, and Matt mentioned it there as well, but the idea of building legitimacy is probably overlooked a lot. If you like, you know, we've both of us have got a podcast going, we've got, you know, Masco's YouTube channel, we run meetup groups. It's all about, you want people to know that you know what the hell you're doing and otherwise they're not going to want to give their money. So find a fantastic deal and then show people that you're capable is the other half of it. And I think, yeah. And Matt also said, you know, there's more money than there are deals that that doesn't feel true at the beginning, but you start realizing that there's money, there's lots of money and, and people are happy to give you it. If you're offering a win-win partnership, the challenge is finding good deals and yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's funny too, because after a couple, and I find, like you said, it's harder for newbies in the beginning to be able to find the money. But after you've done a couple, two, three, four, and other people around you are noticing it, you'll probably say, hey, you know, you're, you're going to hear, hey, next time you get something, let me know, I might be interested. And I think it, you know, it's easier as you get more under your belt and more experience under your belt as well. So if you're able to start with one or two, and use that as experience to talk to your friends and your family to start with and be able to get some money for your third and fourth, et cetera, it definitely gets easier as you get the experience. Yeah, and I think that's something people underestimate is the amount of time it takes to build up that credibility. So, you know, you maybe have this fantastic idea, but until your friends or family see you executing on it, that's all it is an idea and ideas are cheap and easy. It's the execution that's hard and expensive. So. Yeah, definitely lean by example is the best way to get buy-in from outside parties. So just out of curiosity, when you started investing in real estate, what did your friends and family think? So yeah, so mine thought I was crazy. They still think I am crazy. <laughs> so even to this day, my parents will, like my mom will be like, what? Mm. You bought another property? What are you getting yourself into? You had a good job and just all that classic stuff. And when I left my full-time employment, it was very similar. They just couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of it. They're from a different generation, a different time, and they have very different risk profile than myself. So I do sympathize with where they're coming from. They're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, my parents are luckily, they're really understanding, but they actually love driving around and, oh, you got a new place, can we come take a look at it? And like sometimes, yeah, sometimes, no, there's tenants there, you can't just walk into the house and look at it. So they actually really enjoy it. They drive by, oh, you did the deck at this place, like, we're gonna come by and, and take a look. But I think like they do, they have a very different risk profile. Like Matt said, the same thing for me. So they want to make sure that I'm not taking too much risk on and that kind of thing. I mean, they rent still. So like I didn't come from money in any way. And so I think that it's just one of those things where they're trying to understand exactly what's happening. And I'm hoping that I can also take what I'm learning and apply it to them and maybe find a duplex that they can live in and then live for free, right? Rather than paying some other landlord a bunch of money. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, my parents, so they were always, you know, fairly accepting of it and thought it was a good idea. And as you're acquiring more and doing well, like my mom was like, oh, you know, maybe I should look at Brantford and invest, you know, in a similar type of property as you. And so, you know, the more that you do and the more time that goes by and the more that success that they see, and, you know, it actually is less risky, in my opinion, than stocks and, <laughs> and, and even GICs or anything, right? So you can definitely control it. So, it's funny they start seeing the success and definitely want to consider taking part of it at some point. Yeah, we have friends of ours, Justin and Lara. They were on our one of our podcasts. They were saying that their family 
was really not into the idea of them buying. Uh, they wanted to buy a fourplex for the first investment property. And they were moving out of this beautiful single family home. They both had good jobs and their family's like, what are you doing? And I mean, they made a killing on that property and they ended up selling it. But like, and then they went and bought a duplex and the family was all of a sudden very understanding of it. And I don't know if it's because they did such a great job, a job on the first one or because a duplex is a little less scary sounding. But yeah, it takes time for family to adjust. I think they need to see that you're having success with it. And at some point, you know, at the beginning, you're like, I bought another property. And they're like, what? And then later you're like, I bought another property. You're like, oh, where is it? And then <laughs> it just becomes a little more natural. <laughs> it is pretty funny. Like the first like one or two that you let them know about, it's exciting. And then sometimes I even forget now to say, oh, I bought this property until like a week or two <laughs> later. I'm like, oh, by the way, this is my new house. <laughs> no, it's really fun. Why do you think it is that most people don't even know about real estate investing and they hear the worst of the worst and don't even consider it? I think that there's a multitude of different reasons, but I think a lot of it just comes down to a lack of information. So I found it frequently any aspiring real estate investor will come up across, you know, someone's aunt or uncle or cousin twice removed once was a landlord and went wrong. And they'll have some anecdotal story about why being a landlord is terrible and about this idea that you don't want to go to unclog a toilet at 2 a.m. And while I'm certain that there are landlords that have had to do that, you know, I have over 100 tenants and it doesn't come up, you know, like it's pretty rare that that emergency actually occurs in the middle of the night. And if it does, often you either have people or systems in place to deal with it. But I think what it really comes down to is often these anecdotal stories are based off upon someone that got into real estate investing without meaning to get into real estate investing. So they maybe inherited a property or they're about to move in with their significant other. So they decide to turn their current place into a rental property when they never entered into that real estate transaction with the idea of it being a investment. And so I think that a lot of people mess up on their first property because they weren't treating it like a business. They weren't looking at the numbers. They weren't looking at the fundamentals. And so they were setting themselves up for failure. And so same thing as we hear, you know, that whatever 90% of all restaurants or businesses fail in the first X number of years, I think a similar attrition rate we see in real estate. And that probably shouldn't be surprising to us. Yeah. And on a really simple note, I think a lot of the reason people don't get into real estate is because they don't have the money. And that's like excuse number one. And for sure, I think, I mean, yeah, you need to save your money. I mean, typically for your first deal, I'd, I'd recommend buying it with your own money or with a friend or something. So save your money and then buy your first deal and then start realizing that other people have money and they'd be happy to invest with you to build some legitimacy. And yeah, people are just scared of it. It's not as simple as putting some money into an index fund, which is great, but your return on investment's not going to be there. You can't control yeah. it. If it goes down, yeah. no matter what, you know, even if you buy stocks and you think you looked at a company and you did all your research, I mean, if the stock market's taking a tumble, you're taking a tumble with it, you know? Yes. So you mentioned earlier about finding off-market deals to be able to do proper BRRRs and doing signs or finding pocket deals. Can you talk about some of the best deals and how you found them? Sure. Yeah. So the best deals I've ever found definitely have been private deals. The ones that come to mind are often we found them on Kijiji. So it's a for sale by owner. And often some of the best indicators that it may be a good deal is you're going to have no photos, blurry or poorly taken photos, poorly written descriptions, descriptions written in all caps, essentially just signs that the person doesn't necessarily have as much information as you. Pretty much any real estate transaction for you to win the real estate transaction, you're going to need greater information. So you're going to depend on information asymmetry. 
So often we're looking for less educated sellers that are for sale by owners on something like Kijiji or in the United States, you'd probably be on Craigslist. Outside of that, you know, it's the network, right? So that one deal that Kellen hooked me up with, he knew that I was actively looking to buy in this specific neighborhood in this sort of profile of building. And so once he found an opportunity he wasn't able to execute on, he could come turn around and hand it over to me, get a finder's fee. And so I think another part of that too is making sure that the people that help you win, you're making sure that they get fed too. So we're very big on paying finder's fees and paying it forward and all that in our network. But yeah, half of my portfolio is private deals. Uh, the other half is from the MLS. I've paid a couple of finder's fees as well. It's There's no consistency as to how you find private deals. I think people are like, what is your lead generation? Is it all coming from this one place? And I don't know, in my experience, it hasn't been all coming from one place. One of mine I purchased because it was in touch with a painter who knew about a place. And I was like, hey, let me know if you know of anything. And I reached out and he put me in touch with the owner and I worked it out and I paid him a finder's fee. And then another place was a contractor that was our contractor slash property manager. And I kept reaching out to him and saying, hey, like, do you know of anything? And eventually he was like, he was like, yeah, I'm actually managing this one property, but it doesn't look like they're looking to sell. And then I reached out a few months later and I was like, hey, any chance to look to sell? And he's like, actually, they are looking to sell. And he ended up helping me negotiate with it a bit. And I was kind of able to, in that case, it's kind of funny because, you know, the owners trust him. He's a property manager for it. So I was like, okay, why don't you start the negotiation with them? And if you can get them down to around this price, I'll increase the finder's fee that we have to give you. So he was able to kind of start the negotiation and then I was able to kind of finish it off. And I was happy to pay him a higher finder's fee because he helped me through the negotiation process. That's smart. Creating some incentive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think like Kellen and myself both make it well known to both property managers we come across as well as tenants that we do pay finder's fees. And so the big thing is like, I'll tell all my tenants and any property manager that either I meet on a viewing or that works for me or does some side work for me that, hey, I'll pay 500 to $1,000. All you got to do is introduce me to the owner of the property. If I end up eventually buying the property, I'll make sure you get fed. And yeah. it's worked out so far. And what ends up happening is that once a person succeeds, they get that first finder's fee. They become a soldier of yours. They're out on the front line every day looking for an opportunity for you because to them, it was some of the easiest money they ever made. And to you, it led to one of the, probably the best deals you've ever invested in. So Yeah. And like some of these people didn't even know they were going to get a finder's fee. At some points, they're just like, I was like, hey, can you put me in yeah. touch with this person? And then they ended up doing it. And then a few months later, I closed. I sent him an e-transfer. And he was like, well, what's this? about? <laughs> just I wanted to pay it forward, right? And this guy, you know, he paints in other properties in my neighborhood that I want to invest mm-hmm. more in. So like I want to maintain a good relationship with him. I want him to know that you come across another place that's, you know, meeting the, the type of property I'm looking for reach out to me. And I think that's the key is like, what type of properties are you looking for? And who are the types of people going in those properties? Reach out to them. So Matt's talked about the idea of reaching out to your pest control guy, because yeah. the type of properties we're looking for are going to be places that are like run by slumlords or run by properties, you know, really run down properties. They're going to have infestations likely. So, yeah. so deal with people that are dealing with infestations. Same with social workers can be a great source. Yeah. Property standards inspectors, everyone's a potential lead generator for you. It's just a matter of aligning your and their interests together. Really great tips, guys. So one question I have about Kijiji is you said you got some really good deals from Kijiji. Why would they list on Kijiji instead of MLS, in your opinion and from your experience? Typically, they aren't thinking big picture and they don't want to pay a realtor fee. So they want to sell it themselves and therefore they're going to list on Kijiji or wherever else. And 
they don't know what the place is worth. Sometimes they don't know what the place is worth. So it's a great opportunity to just lean on the, hey, by the way, you don't have to pay realtor fees. Meanwhile, you're getting it for way cheaper than you would if they just listed it on the market. And then building off of that, there's often also something one way or another, their ego's tied up in the property or the deal. So I've dealt with sellers that, you know, they've got some bad tenants in there and they're embarrassed that they've allowed that tenant to trash the place as bad as it has. And they're embarrassed to admit that they're let that they're essentially being bullied around by this tenant. And so they just want to be able to wash their hands of this situation. You know, they don't even want a realtor to come in and judge them. They're afraid of being judged. Or maybe, you know, they don't want to list on Realtor.ca because they live like a hoarder and they don't want strangers coming into their house. And so that's often usually there's some sort of I find that some aspect of their ego is tied into the property or the deal. And so that for personal reasons, for whatever reason, they just they don't want a bunch of strangers or attention. And we're essentially able to come in, you know, I'll walk through it once. No judgment whatsoever. Like I'm not snickering or I'm not making snide comments. I'm just walking through. Often the person will be like, oh, my goodness, you know, I meant to tidy up more, but I just didn't get a chance to. And it's maybe clear that they haven't been a great housekeeper for years. But rather than being judgy McJudgerson, you essentially just go through it and you just listen to their story and then at the end make an offer. And so that's often been the cases where, you know, yeah, they just they either want to sell fast or they're hoarders or they're embarrassed about something. And it's an amazing time to get to know the seller's story. And it's yes. a really a little more of a challenge to do that when things are on the MLS, because there's one degree of separation or abstraction or two degrees between you. You have to talk to your realtor who talks to the other realtor who talks to the owner. And meanwhile, here you get to sit down with the owner, talk about what's their problem. How can you be agile to their problems? And so maybe just using a real life example of that, there was a property I bought off of Kijiji, it was for sale by owner. And they'd talking to several realtor friends and they kind of knew what the property was worth and they were in the right ballpark. And we wanted to come in on the low end of that range that they were focusing on. And they obviously wanted to come in at the high end of the range, but there was more to their story than just wanting the highest price. They were in the process of building their dream house in McMansion and they were tight on financing. So they needed to clean up their financing picture in order to get the go ahead to actually break ground on this new McMansion they wanted to build. And so, they need to sell fast, but they could never get all their stuff out of the house in time for the closing. So, you know, it'd be very difficult to create sort of win win we did on this deal. But essentially what we did was we bought the property. We closed exactly when they wanted to, but they continued to rent out the detached oversized two car garage from us for like two months for essentially like a dollar a month. And that allowed them, they could just move all their stuff into there, get building on the place, find new accommodations, move in. And had we not been willing to kind of play this musical chairs with them, they wouldn't have, they might have lost either the lot to their dream house, or they might have just never been able to build it in the first place. So again, it was just really learning their story, like Kellen mentioned. Yeah. And, and thinking bigger too, right? Like for you, you don't care about that garage. You want to understand yeah. what is their problem and not like bicker over the little things, right? I think like, Coming from the frugal mindset, some people can be very like, oh, I want to I want to get every last dollar. I mm -hmm. want to squeeze it. But like think big picture, like you're going to get this property. You're going to get it for a great price. You know, like figure out what their problem is and just solve it. Yeah, it's really insightful. I don't think I've ever heard of somebody doing it with the garage and having them take their stuff from the house of the garage. So great job thinking outside the box. That's awesome. We know people who've had like the owners, I, I know at least two people who've had the owners stay living there after they've closed on the property and rent from them. And, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, they could rent from you for free for a couple of months mm -hmm. uh, if it just helps them. And so that they can, oh, that's the other thing, right? If you're trying to sell in the MLS, 
you need to sell and buy a new place within a period of time. But if you're selling privately, you can say, oh, it's cool. You can stay in the house for a couple of months while we, you know, while you're looking for your new place or whatever. Like you can get really creative with this stuff. Just sit down, figure out what the problems are, and then you can get the post for a way better price because you're willing to work with them. Great tips. Thanks, guys. So you are both out in London and you also have a real estate investing club out there. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so it's called Real and it stands for the Real Estate Association of London. Nailed it. And (laughs) it's essentially a meetup group here in London, Ontario. And what we found is there's several good meetup groups here in London. And we just wanted one that was kind of focused on people that were I guess real people that are focused on taking action. So less oriented towards being part of a funnel or anything and oriented towards people that are really taking action and stepping up and following through on their talk. Yeah, we had another, we have our London on Fire meetup group, which is all about financial independence. And then we wanted to have a meetup group that was specifically dedicated to real estate because we our, our financial independence group was being overwhelmed with all real estate people. So we wanted to have a real estate group and then actually be able to bring in speakers that are talking about this stuff and have a, you know, relatively sales free zone, because that's what a lot of people seem to value about our meetups. They're free. They're, you know, relaxed. And yet we're bringing, I like to think that we're bringing significant value and people that are coming out are bringing their own significant value. And it's great when you can bring one of these things to become self-sustaining. And that's the goal of all of this is to like get something going where the people that are part of the group are become the group. And it's not about us anymore. It's also a really good opportunity for anyone that is interested in their own city to start up their own meetup groups. You can become the hub. You can become the center yeah. where people come to you. And even if you're not the best real estate investor or whatever it is you're interested in, start the meetup group. Matt started one on, on yeah. uh, blockchain technology like Bitcoin and that kind of stuff. You know, probably one like he's self-described as one of the last people who should have yeah. done that. But no one steps up to the plate and does it. Right. So whatever it is, just become the center. Um, Yeah, there's so much value in being the hub or the center of these networks or networking events. And so we often joke about it that, you know, far too many people are focused solely on their net worth rather than their network. And they don't realize that the two are very interlinked. And the biggest thing for me is when I find myself at the center of one of these networks is people come to the person at the center with their problems. And what the average person doesn't realize is a problem is just a profit opportunity in disguise. So it's either problems or profits. And so I love it when people come to me with all their problems because essentially they're just giving me (laughs) tons of opportunities for profit. So, yeah. So if I wanted to go and join the club, where do I find information about it? Yeah, we've got a meetup.com group, a Facebook group. You can check out either of our Instagrams, YouTube, all that. Just look up our names. Or yeah, look up Real Estate Association of London on Facebook or London, Ontario, Financial Independence, Retire Early, London on Fire, if you want to join that. Yeah. Okay. And there's also a podcast and a YouTube. You guys are very, very busy. So <laughs> I don't know how well, you managed to find time. And we're trying to be everywhere. So yeah, so yeah. I ha- also have a YouTube channel where I just document kind of my real estate journey as well as my journey along financial independence, being retired early as well. I get a lot of local real estate investors to jump on and kind of document their experiences And then Kellen and I have the On Fire podcast where we just interview unique, interesting individuals about their lives, their financial journeys and how they're living kind of a unique lifestyle, a unique perspective. Yeah. So definitely tune into the next On Fire podcast where we interview Sarah Larby, a speaker, interview and investor and mentor for young professionals and millennials on real estate investing. (laughs) Yes. Coming (laughs) soon, actually, right after this hour. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. So uh, the last part of the podcast is called the lightning round, where I ask you guys a series of five questions and you give me the answer that comes top of mind. Question number one. So each of you can answer. What is your favorite real estate investing book ever? So mine is going to be, and it's kind of adjacent, but I'm going to go with The Millionaire Next Door. And so it's not necessarily focused on real estate, but it's focused on personal finances. And so Rich Dad, Poor Dad is like my go-to book. So you can read that one, but I think everyone's read it. So Millionaire Next Door is awesome. Yeah, I don't have a great answer for this. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad was one of the first I read. And it was because Bigger Pockets, everyone is recommending it. So I read it in a day and like, you know, audiobooks, a little pro tip, audiobooks, listen at one and a half, two times yes. speed. Maybe you're listening to us at one and a half, two times speed. So we sound extra smart right now. But yeah, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was great. And one of my favorite was Four Hour Work Week as well. Not unique, but I absolutely love that book. Yeah, that's a great book. Number two, your favorite podcast. So mine is Bigger Pockets. Honestly, they have the best real estate investing podcast that there is. I wish mine was the best, but theirs is the best. So yeah, I, I got nothing unique to say there. There are bigger pockets. Yeah. If you're not, because you didn't say real estate podcast. So Radio Lab is also really good. Freakonomics and Freakonomics is cool, actually. I'm thinking back to my favorite episode of Freakonomics. It was, it was called Quitting or something like that. And they kept saying a winner never quits and a quitter never wins. And it was like a, in a sarcastic way that like, you need to be able to identify things in your life that you need to be able to quit from, whether it's your day job or maybe it's just something that you've been doing for so long and, and you've sunk in a lot of cost into it. But you need to be able to be aware of, you know, when it's time to just quit these things. And for non-real estate, Hardcore History is my favorite podcast, hands down. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. OK, very cool. Question number three. What do you do for fun aside from real estate? So my favorite activities are pretty inexpensive. Luckily, I really like backpacking and hiking, canoeing, that kind of stuff. I have done very little of it in the last year, probably because of real estate. But yeah, those are some of my favorite, you know, guitar, like exercise, that kind of stuff. Very simple. Yeah. And so for myself, I spend a lot of time goofing around on YouTube. So I've found it really enjoying uh, the idea of having a one to many conversation, similar to what you can accomplish with podcasts. But there's just something really special about adding that visual aspect from YouTube. So trying to foster, build a community on YouTube has been a ton of fun. And then otherwise, I just like to take on weird random experiments. So last year, me and Kellen started a YouTube incubator here called The Social Lab. So we did that for a bit. And right now in the process of starting up a wholesaling business, just always playing with something, one thing or the other. Didn't mention the conference either. Oh, yeah. And planning OREC, which is a real estate conference here in London, Ontario. That's been taking up like all my waking hours. I'm excited about that. What are the dates for that? So, yeah. So it's going to be May 26th, May 27th here in London, Ontario at the London Convention Center. You can find out everything at www.orec2018.com. That's O-R-E-C-2018.com. <laughs> numbers. I don't know how numbers work. And yeah, it's just going to be we're hoping to create something unlike anything else that uh, is currently going on in the real estate conference world in Canada. So something that's really oriented towards real people that are taking real action, getting real results. So the idea that there's going to be people like Kellen or myself that don't really have an upsell or a pitch, you're not part of a funnel, you're literally just going to come out and network with people that are in the trenches taking action. So yeah, you can tell I've got nothing to sell because I don't know what my goals are. So. <laughs> True. <laughs> Perfect. Question number four. If you lost all your money and assets tomorrow, how would you start again? I think mine would be kind of a cheat. I would lean on my network. I think I've built an extremely valuable network that's worth as much or more than my current net worth reveals. So 
I think it'd be really easy for me to lean upon the relationships I have to be like, hey, I'm going to go find a great private deal now. Let's flip it or let's burr it, get our money out and rinse, recycle, repeat the process. So that's what I'd be doing if I was brand new, if I had no experience, no network, no nothing. I'd probably grind out until I made 10, 20K and then try and get into a personally insured purchase of a home. Yeah, I would I would do this. If I had $0 and no job, I probably wouldn't go get a full-time job again, which maybe says something about what I'm doing right now. But I would I'd probably go do, do some cash work, like, you know, help someone out with some contracting, save up another 5% down payment, or maybe borrow enough for a 20% down payment and close on a property, live for free again and start over. Honestly, it would be the exact same thing that I did. And it'd also be the exact same thing I'm currently doing. I think it's the best way to build passive income, at least in the real estate world. Absolutely. Last question. If somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? Uh, yeah, I'd buy a condo e in Toronto. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All the e-courses. <laughs> Sign up for our special mentorship program right now. Personally, one of two things. If you had $50,000 and no experience, you should probably be finding a partner that does have experience or you're going to need to acquire the experience yourself. Uh, one thing that I've mentioned to a few aspiring real estate investors is far too many people are afraid to get into a good deal on their first deal and they're looking for the perfect deal. We're conditioned already through society that it's OK to spend $50,000 being trained to go be an underwater basket weaver. So the idea that you could go spend $50,000 at the School of Hard Knocks on your first flip or your first burr, and that even if you just broke even, that a lot of people would view that as a failure, I think is a failure to view it appropriately. So the idea of going in, just getting that first deal and learning through Hard Knocks is great. Otherwise, get a partner that knows what they're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, assuming it's in a market similar to what we're in, where 50K is enough probably for a 20% down payment, that's exactly what I would do. I would do 20% down on a duplex, triplex, fourplex, and or I'd borrow a little bit more and buy something a little bit bigger. And I mean, I would rinse and repeat. I mean, it's what I've been doing. It's what's been working. I think the unfortunate thing is, like, it's not a sexy answer, right? Like, this is literally the RPG version of go kill rats and gain experience <laughs> points, right? That's what we're like, talking about. Maybe I would park it with a hard money lender while I'm waiting to find a deal. If there's some flexibility there, you can earn a lot more than having it sit in a bank account. But otherwise, yeah, just rinse and repeat. Cool. Thanks for playing the lightning round questions, guys. Thank you. Thanks for accepting the fact that they weren't lightning fast. <laughs> That's funny. So final questions. Where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more about you? So, yeah. So you can find me on YouTube. Just Google my name, Matt McKeever or YouTube.com slash Matt McKeever. Definitely hit that subscribe button, smash the like button. And yeah, that's my favorite way to interact. Otherwise, Instagram. I think Instagram's fantastic. So if you want to get my attention, slide into the DMs on Instagram, Matt McKeever 85. Yeah, Instagram for me as well, Kellen, K-E-L-L-A-N dot P-A-N. It's probably the best place. Some people are adding me on Facebook, but I don't generally, I, I think you're the same. Like, I'm not accepting all of them anymore. Facebook's a little bit more personal, I think. So Instagram, everyone can follow. It's a public profile. Feel free to send messages on there. I also have a YouTube account, but it's inactive, but it won't be forever. Perfect. And any last words of advice or anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know about? Make money is a team sport. There's more than enough money in this world for us all to make it. But if you're not saving it, I mean, like, what's the point, guys? That's Matt's uh, yeah, YouTube that's catch. My YouTube uh. catch so. Yeah, I think just honestly take action. Go out there and meet people in your network. If there's not a network group out there for you to be a part of, start it. It doesn't matter. 
you've listened to one bigger pockets podcast and you feel like a fraud for going out and starting the network event, just own it. Just be like, this is for the brand new real estate investors group. Yeah. And just start meeting people that are doing what you want to do. It's the fastest way to speed up your own learning curve. Yeah, I would say go out. And for me, a big thing was just ask a lot of good questions. Listen to people and copy the strategies that are working. Okay, awesome. So on that note, thanks guys for being on Where Should I Invest? See you next time. Thanks, Thanks. Sarah. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest?